according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are returning once again to Proverbs chapter 11. Proverbs chapter 11, where we left off two weeks ago. I have the right notes here. We do. We talk about joy and exaltation in point eight, and then moving on to point nine here this morning. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking God the Father to set aside distractions, to take every thought captive, to bless uh, each one of us as we study, or me, in my case, as I teach. I'm a little, little lightheaded this morning. I'm told cedar is in the air, so maybe that's it. But Anyway, our God is more sovereign than the cedar, so let's uh, call upon his faithfulness. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have this morning to assemble together. We call upon your faithfulness, Father, to, uh, to bless this time, Father, to provide the concentration, to provide the, uh, all things that are necessary to study to show ourselves approved. Father, overcome whatever human uh, weaknesses or limitations there might be on the part of the speaker or on the part of the hearers, and Father, glorify your Son on this day. I thank you that we're not here for a, a physical pursuit or uh, any kind of an earthly mental pursuit. It is a spiritual function, Father, as your Holy Spirit guides us in these things. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, in this, uh, I marked that we left off with point eight. Is that, did you have the same thing? All right, point eight. We're talking about political joy and exaltation. And it's an interesting point to come to in a political season, still dealing with the aftermath of the election, the presidential election, and uh, some folks that have joy and some folks that have sorrow. And uh, had the election gone the other way, then there would have been joy and sorrow the other way, depending on, uh, on what side uh, people are on and, and what they view as a, a victory or what they view as a defeat. And uh, so I think it's important that we identify this basically on God's standard in the sense that there is righteousness and unrighteousness and there is a standard that he lays out there. And if we have wickedness in office, then we're going to suffer. If we have righteousness in office, we're going to uh, be blessed. And we say in office, uh, you know, from our perspective as, as the presidency or a, a representative republic, um, in the ancient world, you know, it, it was a king, <laughs> you know. And we don't say he's in office, we say he's on a throne and, uh, and, uh, and so forth. Anyway, as we look at it here, Proverbs 11, verses 10 and 11, also verse 14, I think, in the same context with, uh, in connection to this. Verse 10, when it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there is joyful shouting. By, uh, by the, and so pay attention to the direction, because we go both directions in this, in this passage. So when it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. A political consequence is observed on this earth when the righteous are going well. And uh, when the wicked perish, there is joyful shouting again a political celebration. There is a public acknowledgement of a good thing has happened in the death of the wicked. There is joyful shouting. And then the other direction, verse 11, by the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked, it is torn down. So do you see that there? Verse 10 and verse 11. Also verse 14, where there is no guidance, the people fall. 
But in abundance of counselors, there is victory. And so we'll talk about the need for guidance and the benefit that happens in uh, political terms, in our culture, in our neighborhood, in our society, when believers are operating under biblical principles. And they have the wisdom as given from God as to what He designed it for, what works, what benefits our culture. Well, who better to ask than the one who designed this? <laughs> the, the creator who designed all these things, who, who created the earth, who created man, who created marriage, who created family, who created and designed nations. The ultimate design, we call them the laws of divine establishment. And even if you're not saved, you can still follow these earthly principles, these establishment life principles, and, and be edified, be blessed, be temporal life, have temporal life success in marriage and family and nationalism. If we defy these laws, well, they still exist. <laughs> it's like defying the law of gravity. You know, you can step off a bridge and say, I don't believe in gravity, but gravity still works, okay? The laws of what God designed still works. And that's true for marriage, for families, for nations, and all these principles. And so, um, you know, when we, when we talk about economics, when we talk about politics, when we talk about all these other things, we can have competing theories and in earthly terms, we can have competing theories, and we can weigh this over that, and what, you know, capitalism versus communism versus socialism versus all these things. Even within capitalism, then we can talk about different economic models. Do we prefer the, the Austrian school, or what school do we prefer? Are we Keynesian in our economics? What do we prefer? All right? And as opposed to balancing one against another and, and saying these are advantages and those are disadvantages and, and whatever... Let's hold everything up to Scripture and say, what is it that is fundamentally in agreement with what God has uh, provided in the laws of divine establishment? Because when we do look, we do find that there are those principles that do align and those principles that do not align. Principles that are at odds with what God has provided. And that's uh, what we want to be clear on in, uh, in this study and in every study that we do. Some point A, the temporal welfare of the city provides temporal welfare to the just and the unjust. Now this is the direction that we typically think of. This is the direction that we're familiar with, I think because of Jeremiah 29, right? Because of Matthew 5.45, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Uh, we tend to think of things flowing downhill in terms of when our, when our nation does well, then we're blessed, okay? If our nation is victorious, we're blessed, that's the direction we usually think of it in, all right? The temporal welfare of the city provides temporal welfare to the just and the unjust. And we get that. Jeremiah 29, 7. What were the exiles told? Remember? No. Okay, you weren't there? All right, Jeremiah 29, 7. Okay, we've been, we've been two weeks away from this. And in Jeremiah, I mean, we were in 29 not that long ago. All right, it says, Seek the welfare of the city to which I send you. For in its welfare you will have your welfare. And I think this is uh, useful to consider, not only the uh, imperative to pray, but to also participate, to take part. Seek, that is pursue, chase after, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray. You see that? All right, so... We're not defining seek the welfare exclusively as praying and nothing else because prayer is listed in addition to seeking the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And so we want to be of benefit to our community. We want to be of benefit. We want to be productive. 
We want to be producing members of our, of our community, not detractive, okay? We want to be contributing to its benefit, not uh, simply, um, you know, leeching off of its benefits and not producing anything for it. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you to exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will have welfare. And so this is, this is the, I think, the, the, the key issue here. And, and, and we make our own applications, of course. We're not exiles being sent to Babylon, but the pattern is there. And I think it's a vital pattern. The, the, the captivity is a very useful uh, section of the Old Testament for us to apply because we ourselves are pilgrims and strangers. We ourselves are aliens, all right? That portion of the Old Testament illustrates uh, our reality as, as, as a holy people living in a place where we don't belong. And, and just as the Jews, those that were spiritually minded, those that were um, oriented to doctrine, they wanted to go back to where they belonged. They wanted to return when they were allowed to return precious few did okay the bulk of them were were fat dumb and happy living in babylon thriving doing well they handled the transition from babylon to persia and they were doing pretty well they were thriving and uh, you look at the numbers of those who did return under zerubbabel ezra and nehemiah they're pretty small numbers the bulk of the jewish population was pretty happy to stay in in the babylon province of the persian empire all right Anyway, so we're used to it coming this way. Matthew 5.45, of course, says the rain falls on the just and the unjust. And uh, that's another principle that we quote a lot and we, we identify. Um, whether it's rain or uh, hurricanes or earthquakes or whatever it might be. Um, yeah, your Father who is in heaven, for he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And uh, that's the principle. All right, so Matthew 5.45 contains that as a principle. So if an earthquake hits Austin, guess what? It's not just unbelievers that are going to suffer. We're going to suffer. Believers are going to suffer. And uh, uh, the, the, the good things that happen to a nation, um, economically, militarily, everything else, they're going to benefit believers and unbelievers alike. The bad things that happen to a nation, they're going to be to the detriment of believers and unbelievers alike. Uh, do you want to be on the winning side or the losing side of a war when two nations go to war? <laughs> Clearly, you don't want to be on the losing side of a war. You don't want an invading army to come in and conquer your land and all the horrible things that happen when a non-American military conquers a land. See, <laughs> I think, you know, it's amazing. And I was there in Kuwait and Iraq and uh, in the first Gulf War in 1990, you know, we didn't go in and rape and pillage and plunder and and all. It's it's uh, our military does not do that. See, but if a different military was to storm in, that's kind of their stock and trade in their culture and their approach. Anyway, so this is what we talk about when we talk about flowing downhill. When we talk about the the political welfare of the city flows down and it reaches us. It reaches us, it reaches the unbeliever, it reaches everybody um, as the welfare uh, benefit, uh, you know, the, the, the goodness of, of God's provision flows down. Um, and so we get that. But Proverbs, though, turns it the other direction. Proverbs has it seeping up from us to benefiting the, uh, the, the nation, see. And in some respects, Jeremiah does the same thing. That's what, like I said, when it says, seek the, the welfare of the city to which I send you, we're contributing to that. We are providing for that. 
And so uh, the spiritual life of citizens and politicians provides temporal benefit to the population. And this now pushes it the other direction. And I think that's what's in keeping with what we're looking at today in uh, Proverbs 11, verses 10 and 11. The more believers that we have growing in grace and knowledge, the, the benefit will be there to our society. The benefit will be there to our, our local community, our state, our nation. The spiritual life of citizens and politicians provides temporal benefit to the population. And, uh, and there you have it. Uh, I think Rodney Stark wrote a book about this. It's the benefits of freedom, the benefits of, of Christians in America. And even the atheist benefit, the more believers there are that are living their lives according to biblical standards. <laughs> okay? The more believers there are that, are that are operating on thou shall not steal and thou shall not commit adultery and thou shall not murder. And, and you know, does that hurt the atheist if we're living out our Christian life? No, it doesn't hurt the atheist. It benefits the atheist when we're living our Christian life. And the more of us doing what we do, they benefit too. Even if they hate, you know, don't believe in our God and, and, and hate the God they don't believe in. All right? And so we have it here. Again, our verses this morning, it is, it is us and the, the influence of our Christian walk, our, our spiritual walk that is having uh, an effect in the politics, in the government. The city is rejoicing when it goes well with the righteous. Uh, similar in Proverbs 14 and verse 34. Proverbs 14 and verse 34. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. All right? And in, in part, they know this. And, and that, too, is why they hate it so much. I think that, too, is why they're so hostile to bakers and photographers and, and other people living out their faith. Because I think it's a visceral, satanic hatred for everything that they're opposed to. And it's, um, yeah, shouldn't be surprising to us, should it? How about Daniel 4.27 and Daniel 6, verse 4 and 5? Did we look at these already? All right, well, then I won't camp on it, but we should at least... Remind ourselves, Daniel 4.27, Daniel 6, verse 4 and verse 5. And here's, um, the benefit of a king who can be walking in righteousness. I mean, every believer is going to have a benefit, but imagine if the king is doing this. So therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. And so every believer is going to have impact. We will, you know, a little old us in our neighborhoods and in our state. But imagine the king, imagine the president, imagine the governor, imagine people in high political office and the benefit they can have to their nation when they conduct their life according to biblical standards. And then the example of Daniel in uh, Daniel 6, verses 4 and 5. And yeah, this is, uh, I remember this now, the fellow uh, commissioners that uh, didn't like the fact that Daniel was incorruptible. And uh, these three commissioners, and two of them want to, you know, get their cut from the, uh, from the satraps. 120 satraps, 40 per commissioner, problem is daniel isn't taking the kickbacks daniel is not corrupt 
And the other two who want to be corrupt can't be corrupt because it would reflect uh, with, with his incorruption. And uh, so they have to stage this thing to, uh, to get him out of office. And it ends up backfiring, of course. They get fired and Daniel becomes the one, uh, the one commissioner over, over all 120 of these, uh, of these satraps. All right. Some point C, believers learn to stand out or lay low as political ascendancy or descendancy is manifest. That's how I remember this. And then um, we have Proverbs, uh, we have Amos. When we are blessed to participate, then additional blessings are bestowed. The privilege that we have to take part in these things is, uh, is indeed a grace provision from the Lord. All right, so we learn two things. You know, we, we, we have our eyes open. Is it political ascendancy or is it political descendancy? Is righteousness expanding uh, or is darkness expanding? And uh, do we, should we lay low? Should we have this discernment related to these things? We, we better. Proverbs 28, verse 12 and 28. When the righteous triumph, there is great glory. But when the wicked rise, men hide themselves. Okay? Who's in charge and how much trouble am I in? <laughs> okay? And when the wicked rise, men hide themselves, but when they perish, the righteous increase. And so there's a great freedom. You know, think about it. When a, when a king like Manasseh or Amon, when those guys die, and then a righteous king comes in, think about the sigh of relief. Think about the, the, the benefit of saying, wow, now we finally have a king that loves the Lord. Now we have a king that's serving him. Now we have freedom again. And uh, instead of all the darkness that we've been under, under all this time. Uh, Proverbs 29 and verse 2, when the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, people groan. And these all ought to be self-explanatory. They all ought to be um, self-evident. Why do we have such difficulty with it? Amos 5.13. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. Therefore, at such a time... The prudent person keeps silent, for it is an evil time. You just learn to close your mouth. <laughs> you learn to hunker down, trust in the Lord, live by faith. All right? And uh, this is, these are the, the precepts, the principles of wisdom that he's designed. We ought to be operating on such, uh, on such an occasion. Now, if we can engage... If we can participate, if we can change things for the better, if we're able rather to be free, well then do that, okay? But in the meantime, until the circumstances change, stay faithful in the circumstances God has placed you in. And if we are blessed to participate, then, man, by all means, participate. Now in the ancient world, that was pretty rare. I mean, how do you become king in the ancient world? How do you, how do you advance in, in the political process? Uh, in our in our day and age, in our culture, in our nation, we have the, the freedom to do that. We can participate. We can run for office. We can engage our, our elected officials. We, can, we, we have a voice in our community. These are freedoms that maybe we take for granted because we've had them all our lives. It is uh, pretty unique in human history to have uh, the freedom that we have. All right, Genesis 45, 8. Of 
course, Genesis 45, we've got the example here of Joseph. His brothers are terrified. <laughs> right? They find out who he is, and they remember what they did to him. Okay? But he says, relax. God sent me before you. God sent me before you. And I love this. Um, verse 3 is the big reveal. I am Joseph. And uh, anyway, they are dismayed at his presence. I'd say so. And uh, verse 5, he says, Do not be grieved or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years. There are still five years in which there will be neither plowing or harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve you for a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by great deliverance. Whatever our hardship is, God's way ahead of us. He's got the plan to preserve the remnant. He's got the plan to provide for us. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, the Lord of all his household, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. So he's in political office. He is the top dog in Egypt. He is the grand vizier, second only to Pharaoh. What what Joseph says, that's law. His word is law. In, in all of Egypt. Theoretically, Pharaoh could veto him or overrule, but Pharaoh's not going to do that. Pharaoh trusts everything Joseph says. So hurry and go to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not delay. And so when you have a ruler of a land who knows that he is where God has put him and he is humble before God, he's a student of the word of God, Isn't that a good thing? I would much rather have a disciple, a a Bible-believing Christian in office, especially one that's oriented theologically as we are. Man, that's the best of both worlds. That's the best of everything right there. Esther, chapter 8, verses 15 and 16. Esther. Right before Job, right before Psalms. Esther chapter 8. And, uh, of course, this is the example of Mordecai. Before Mordecai was promoted, Esther was promoted. Esther had her... uh, Her her job interview was a little bit different than Mordecai's job interview. (laughs) All right. Um... Anyway, some people don't like the story of Esther and the, 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 the idea of a king's harem and the idea of bringing in all these virgins and finding a new wife and whatever. I mean, yeah, okay, I don't, I don't want my daughter going through that. But I mean, that's, that was the ancient world and that was the procedure and God used that. And uh, Esther was, uh, anyway, she understood her role and she... Uh, delivered her people in that process all right i do think it's interesting though i'm headed for chapter eight i'm just getting distracted and sidetracked please forgive me (laughs) because the day that's mentioned here is the first day of tevel and um, when she's brought in the first day of Tevel in the king's uh, whatever year of his reign, and she gets brought in here. But anyway, 
probably not worth it. Okay. I am not losing my mind. I'm just not seeing the month Tavel mentioned. So skip it. Go to chapter 8. Follow my notes. Verse 15, verse 16. Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a large crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. For the Jews, there was light and gladness and joy and honor. Yeah, you bet. <laughs> they were under a death sentence not that long ago. They were, gonna fa- they were facing extermination until their deliverance, until they were given the right to defend themselves, to arm themselves, to defend themselves, to fight back. All right? You ever wonder why the Second Amendment's important? <laughs> okay? They, uh, they have to protect themselves against the, the government extermination. In each and every province, in each and every city, wherever the king's commandment and his decree arrived, there was gladness and joy for the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many among the peoples of the land became Jews, for the dread of the Jews had fallen upon them. And so there's the consequences. And then, you know, a feast that is developed on the basis of this deliverance then, practiced uh, ever since. Practiced ever since. All right. So when we get to engage, when we get to participate, say, I think it's marvelous that uh, uh, one of the members of, of, of uh, Andy Woods' church there in Sugarland, Sugarland Bible Church, is, uh, is an elected representative in the Texas House of Representatives. That's, that's great. <laughs> you know? I wish the entire House of Representatives went to Andy Woods' church or, or our church or something like that, you know, where they're under solid teaching, where they're, they're oriented to the plan of God, where uh, convictions related to thou shalt not steal uh, uh, are the are the order of the day, okay? And uh, so many practical benefits to the word of God that affect our politicians, many of whom think it's okay to steal, and it's okay to steal and give to somebody else and and buy some votes that way. No, it's not okay to steal, because <laughs> the Bible says, "Thou shalt not steal, or thou shalt not covet, or thou shalt." I mean, think about how many commandments impact the 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 writing of our laws, or don't impact the writing of our laws because the commandments get ignored all right now we move on and we get to point nine let's look at verses 12 and 13 here we'll come back to verse 14 yeah point nine gossip and slander Gossip and slander destroy a community, so wisdom keeps matters silent. Again, back to silence. More silence. There's political silence, and then there's neighborhood silence. Here's more silence. Gossip and slander destroy a community, so wisdom keeps matters silent. A concept we looked at previously in chapter 10, it gets repeated here again in chapter 11. Love that covers a multitude of sins. The reason why we don't bring things up either to the person that offended us or to a third party that has no business knowing about it anyway. Let's look at this tandem here of gossip and slander. We have a pair of verses that form a unit poetically in verses 12 and 13. He who despises his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding keeps silent. 
He who goes about as a talebearer reveals secrets, but he uh, who is trustworthy conceals a matter. Okay, and so this is what we're going to look at here in point nine and the subpoints A, B, and C. We got some uh, some meat to I think dig out of these verses here in these principles. Again, that ought to be self-explanatory, but let's explain them. <laughs> okay, um, the uh, the disruption to the community and the damage that gets done, not only in earthly terms but also in in spiritual terms. You'll notice the uh, it starts with a mental attitude of despising. It, it discusses the the diminished capacity of the heart. A lacking sense is a lacking heart is a uh, is, is even a, a, an insanity expression related to are you out of your mind <laughs> okay it's like uh, a man that commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense he's he's lost his mind and uh, do you know the damage that's done what you're doing to your own soul what you're doing to your own lave your own lavav in the hebrew all right so he who despises his neighbor lacks sense and the the arrogance of of despising the arrogance of looking at someone as less than useless, as worthless, as zero, as, as of course me, so much better. Uh, you know, um, the, the, uh, this is not love your neighbor, right? It's the opposite of love your neighbor. This is despise your neighbor. And that thinking then leading to the slander, leading to the gossip, leading to the harm, leading to the, you're not just thinking bad things about him, you're saying bad things about him, and you are spreading that attitude all around because you are despising your neighbor. And in that gossip and in that slander, who are you really hurting? Are you hurting them? Are you hurting yourself? Are you poisoning your soul all the more? Because that thinking is being reinforced through the the saying. And and ultimately, you're becoming a type of Satan. You're becoming a slanderer. Satan is the slanderer. And all you can do is go around accusing others. What does that achieve for yourself? <laughs> Do you really feel better about yourself if you can uh, drag all these other people down? Is that how that works? Now, uh, so there's a lot of, uh, in the poetry here, there's a lot of contrast. Uh, there's the despising versus understanding, right, in verse 12. There's the uh, despising. Um, there's the, uh, notice the talebearer versus the faithful one the faithful one. We're we're called to be faithful or trustworthy. He who is trustworthy conceals a matter. So we got contrast there. Contrast between revealing something or concealing something. Well, is it our place to reveal it? And remember, concealing is not excusing it. Concealing is not covering for it. Concealing is not, it's not as if you're hiding evidence so that you can be a contributing member to the crime or contributing member to the sin. Concealing is just simply covering it over, not looking at it, passing it over with the divine viewpoint that God does when He atones, when He covers, when He passes over. It's not our place to reveal it. It's not our place to judge it. All right, so there's a lot of pa- parallels there. Uh, Peek back to chapter 10 and see uh, the verses that we've already looked at in the previous chapter, verse 18, verse 19. He who conceals hatred has lying lips, but and he who spreads slander is a fool. When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. And so there in chapter 10, we saw it on more of a personal dynamic there in, in relationship one with another. Um, as far as what do, we, what do we spread around, what do we keep quiet? 
How, are we, how do we benefit when we keep quiet? So there were principles that applied there. All right. Sub point A then. Despising your neighbor is insane. <laughs> All right. Despising your neighbor is insane. Just who do you think you are? Why do you despise them? Why do you despise anybody? Are we here to despise? Is this an activity that we should engage in? The verb is booze. B-U-W-Z. And it only has, uh, the verb only has 12 uses. The noun has 11 uses. And uh, they're spelled identically, booze and booze. Uh, You just have to tell in context whether booze is being used as a verb or booze is being used as a noun. So sometimes as a verb, we translate it despise. If If you booze your neighbor, you despise your neighbor. But if you have booze, that means you have contempt. It's the product of that despising. You have contempt. And so uh, when Strong put this together, he assigned back-to-back numbers, 936 and 937. 936 applies to the verb and 937 applies to the, to the noun. And between the verb and the noun, we've got a total of 23 places to look at in the, uh, in the Old Testament, 23 usages, 12 for the verb and 11 for the noun. And... Uh, it, they're, they're useful. Uh, a lot of times they're in the poetic passages. You'll observe a lot of them are in Psalms, and uh, quite a few of them are here in Proverbs. Uh, back in chapter 1, we saw it. We were first introduced to booze in the very introduction to the book of Proverbs, because a fool will despise knowledge and instruction. Remember that? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction, Proverbs 1, 7. And so uh, as an antithesis here for you and I walking in wisdom and having the fear of the Lord and, and embracing what God has provided for us, we eat it up. We love it. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for your instruction, especially that disciplined instruction of the Musar whereby uh, you know, we're, we are disciplined in it and we're chastened and we're rebuked and we, we, we crave that. We need that because we know that this uh, this growth process from salvation to physical death is uh, is so urgent. The fool, on the other hand, doesn't see the point. The fool, on the other hand, sees no value in it. Looks at wisdom and instruction and says, "I don't need that. Who needs that? What a waste of time!" And they despise it. They view it with contempt. It is utterly worthless. It is so not worth it. Uh, well, I'm not going to waste my time with that. You know, who needs correction? I'm perfect, <laughs> right? Who needs a rebuke? Man, you know, who needs the Word of God? I know it all already. I read that once, okay? That's the idea of despising. That's the idea of contempt. Uh, before we look at these other Proverbs uses, let's see, we've already seen 630. Let me grab that one as well. Proverbs 630. Men do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is hungry. All right, it's understandable. When the guy's he's hungry, he's starving, he's a vagrant, whatever the case may be. He doesn't have any money. He's starving to death. Okay? I don't despise him for that. It's understandable. Just in pure human terms, you know, guy's got to eat. Um, it's unfortunate that he's in the position he's in. Um, so you wouldn't despise that. 
There might be other people you might despise, but this at least is understandable. So we, we covered that when we were in chapter 6. Obviously when he's found he must repay sevenfold, he must give all the substance of his house. And if he can't afford to eat, how is he going to afford to repay sevenfold? Clearly something's going to have to happen. And typically the debt slavery is what resolved that, that he would uh, be put under bondage and he would work out his, his crime, he would work out his debts, and uh, then he would be freed. He'd have his jubilee and he would have his uh, redemption. All right, so those are the ones we've seen already. Chapter 11 and verse 12. There's a lot more coming up. Before we get to the rest of those in Proverbs, though, let's back up. Let's see uh, some of these other uses. Genesis 38. (laughs) Genesis 38 and verse 23. Where it's translated laughingstock. Yeah, this is where Judah lost his uh, checkbook. <laughs> he lost his seal. He lost his, and you understand, the seal is what allowed him to sign contracts. It would allow him, it was, it was his uh, bond, it was his seal, it was everything. His ID, it'd be like you losing your passport, your driver's license, your checkbook, and, uh, and your social security card and, and everything. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's all wrapped up in who you are. And how you identify legally and economically and, and all the rest of this. And uh, Tamar, uh, she was playing the harlot here. and He was her client. He was her customer. And uh, she kept him as a deposit uh, for her harlotry fees. And uh, when he sends the, when he sends the, uh, the, the, the funds to, uh, to, to the pledge to get the, the uh, seal back, she's gone. See... And so, um, anyway, uh, the servant returns to Judah and said, I didn't find her. And furthermore, the men of the place say there's been no temple prostitute here. And Judah said, let her keep them. Otherwise, we will become a laughingstock. After all, I sent this young goat, but you did not find her. And uh, not until three months later, and she's found to be pregnant. And notice, um, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, has played the harlot. Behold, she is also with child by harlotry. And Judah said, bring her out, let her be burned. And, um, you know, talk about hypocrisy, (laughs) you know. Ooh, yeah, she's such a bad sinner. Um, You know, you dirtbag, you're the one that that, uh, she fornicated with. Burn yourself while you're at it. And so while she was being brought out, she sent to her father-in-law saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And course it's it's his own uh, signet ring and cords and staff so judah recognized them and said she is more righteous than i and as much as i did not give her to my son shalah and she and he did not have relations with her again so in any event that's the sad ugly story there but the term laughingstock that's our term as it relates to booze as it relates to somebody that's despised somebody that's held in contempt someone that their their neighbor looks at or their family their clan their tribe whoever would look at this person and say really and uh, be disappointed be shamed be be um um embarrassed oh man you know want to not be associated with such a person in uh, whatever context there, there might be. Job 31 and verse 34. Job 31, 34. Job. 
31-34. Job, in his defense, will say he doesn't do this. Um, when he's defending all of his innocence and talking about the things he has not done, Verse 29, have I rejoiced at the extinction of my enemy or exulted when evil befell him? No, I have not allowed my mouth to sin by asking for his life and a curse. Have the men of my tent not said, who can find one who has not been satisfied with his meat? So he has a very public reputation and it's all flawless. The alien is not lodged outside for I've opened my doors to the traveler. Have I covered my transgressions like Adam? By hiding my iniquity in my bosom? No. He's got nothing secret, nothing hidden. He didn't put a fig leaf on. He's not making excuses for anything. Uh, Because I feared the great multitude and the contempt of families terrified me and kept silent and did not go out of doors. He says, I haven't done any of that. Haven't done any of that. He didn't allow the fear of contempt to shape what he was doing. But anyway, there's the verb, or there's the noun, rather, the contempt of families and, uh, and, the, and the power that such a thing can have, okay? or at least used to. There used to be a public shame. There used to be a public contempt. There used to be, when that reputation was gone, and it would have that kind of uh, impact, say. I think we've lost a lot of that in recent generations. So there's the contempt there. Psalm thirty-one, eighteen. Psalms thirty-one, eighteen. So the rest of these examples all come out of Psalms and Proverbs. Uh, this is a psalm of David, and he's got some enemies, he's got some critics, and um, he says in verse 14, as for me, I trust in you, O Lord, I say you are my God, my times are in your hand, deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me, make your face to shine upon your servant, save me in your loving kindness. So all these enemies have David surrounded, but he's leaving himself in the hands of God. And if God smiles, that's all he needs, okay? And uh, he's trusting in the Lord. My times are in your hand. So if this is the day I die, this is the day I die. But that's a time that's in your hand. Just as the time I was born is in your hand. All my times are in your hand. So uh, let me not be put to shame, O Lord, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them be silent in Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, This is where we get to our term. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak arrogantly against the righteous with pride and contempt. With pride and contempt. Now this verse is useful because not only does it illustrate the contempt that we're talking about in Proverbs 11, but it also illustrates how that mental attitude can't help itself. That mental attitude never stays internal. It just bubbles out verbally. It bubbles out with what then gets spoken. And uh, as we see here, the lying lips speaking arrogantly against the righteous. When we get back to Proverbs 11, we're going to see that viewing your neighbor with contempt and it just bubbles out with the slander, with the gossip. 
So don't be surprised as, uh, as many of these themes uh, get connected the way that they do. Jesus addressed this. He said, you know, it's in the heart. It's what fills the heart that comes out. It's, it's from the heart that's, that, that controls the things that, uh, that are said. Psalm 107 and verse 40. Now it's interesting, what happens when God does this? Does God pour out contempt? This verse says so. Um, everything that God does here in Psalm 107, he, um, verse 33, he changes rivers into a wilderness and springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into salt waste because of the wickedness of those who dwelt in it. You ever wonder what the inhabitants of the Sahara Desert used to be like? <laughs> it wasn't always a desert. You know, when it was a forest before, what, what were they like? How did that judgment hit? All right. Uh, he changes a wilderness into a pool of water and a dry land into springs of water. There he makes the hungry to dwell that he may establish an inhabited city and sow fields and plant vineyards and gather a fruitful harvest. He also blesses them and they multiply greatly. He does not let their cattle decrease. When they are diminished and bowed down through oppression, misery, and sorrow... Okay, but God's still in charge. He pours contempt upon princes and makes them wander in a pathless waste. But he sets the needy securely on high, away from affliction, and makes his family as like a flock. And so and we have this in various other places. He is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He, uh, this is the, the nature of God who bestows, uh, I think what Arnold Fruchtenbaum calls, like for like in kind. He likes to talk about the hand of God's judgment that is commensurate to, uh, to that which he's judging. Why does God pour contempt on these guys? Because they have contempt for him. These, these uh, godless, unrighteous princes in, that are being rebuked here, he, they, they despise God. So when God judges them, he's pouring contempt right back on them. See? And yet the humble? He gives grace to the humble. See? Again, that's like for like in kind. And it's, it's, a, it's a pattern throughout the, throughout the scriptures. So he sets the needy securely on high away from affliction, makes his family as like a flock. The upright see it and are glad. But all unrighteousness shuts, his, uh, shuts its mouth. Who is wise? Let me give heed to these things and consider the loving kindnesses of the Lord. As I say, all of these should be self-explanatory. And, in, and earlier we were talking about the righteous reigning and, and, and we, we celebrate when the wicked reign, you know, we're quiet, we lay low. Um, all of these should be self-explanatory. The problem is, I think far too often we get humans, not we in this room, but, but Americans, people, they get, they get um, so much worldly thinking saturating their, their mentality, it confuses, and, and so they're not clear on what's righteous and what's not righteous. What's up and what's down. And, 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 and sadly, it's believers. I know believers that are scared of Trump. I know believers that really, really wanted Hillary. And they view Hillary as righteous and Trump as wicked. They view Democrats as righteous and Republicans as wicked. And I think we better look at this because there's believers that view Republicans as righteous and Democrats as wicked. And I think everybody's wicked. <laughs> okay? There are within both parties unbelievers and within both parties believers. 
And within both parties, there are believers with rotten doctrine or no doctrine. And within... (laughs) I am not aware of an evangelical, dispensationally oriented believer on the Democrat side. I have to say that. If there's one, I don't know it. If there's one... And so, you know... That's why I think we've got to be grounded in these, in these texts to say this is righteous, this is not righteous. What is the role of government? What is the role of protecting our rights? And what are our rights that come from God? Okay? Because I think that there is a, a tendency to view government as the provider. And we're going to take care of people, and we're going to give them this, and we're going to give them this, and we're going to give them this. And government has been made an idol in the place of God. No, it's my God shall supply all my needs, not my government shall supply all my needs. Okay? And so we come to a fundamental thing, right? Anyway, and I'm going to be careful as I preach this because I, I, I don't want reaction, okay? I would never want, and I've got, my sisters both married Democrats, all right? So this is a family thing for me. <laughs> all right, you know. But we want to make sure that we're, we're following what God says. All right. So um, we can rejoice in the righteous. Psalm uh, 119 in verse 22. Psalm 119 in verse 22. Take away reproach and contempt from me. For I observe your testimonies. Even though princes sit and talk against me, your servant meditates on your statutes. Your testimonies also are my delight. They are my counselors. You know, if you're, if you're under attack because you're a disciple of the Word of God, well, praise God. And whatever contempt comes as a result of that, well, he may choose to take it away. He may not choose to take it away. He may leave you there under that contempt. And the princes who should know better, <laughs> why are they pouring contempt on this kid for his love of, of the Word of God? See, it's unfortunate. So your testimonies also are my delight. They are my counselors. Psalm 123, verses 3 and 4. Be gracious to us, O Lord, be gracious to us, for we are greatly filled with contempt. Our soul is greatly filled with the scoffing of those who are at ease and with the contempt of the proud. Common circumstance, we have it to this day. So those are the uh, Psalms. We've covered two of the Proverbs already, 1-7 and 6-30. Of course, 11-12 is our chapter today. We'll come back to this theme again in chapter 12 and verse 8. 13 and verse 13, 14, 21, 18, uh, 23, verse 9 and 22. Notice how many of these fit in what I'm calling public and uh, personal and public wisdom. How many of these usages fall between chapter 10 and chapter 24? Right? This is that section of Proverbs that we're, we're dealing with our public life, our public wisdom, standing in our culture, standing in our community as men of wisdom, as women of wisdom, as believers living in the wisdom of the Word of God. 
Only two in the in the parental portion. One seven and six thirty are in that parental wisdom portion. The rest of this comes um, the bulk of the rest of this comes in uh, ten through twenty four. One additional use in chapter thirty. All right. So in twelve uh, eight, a man will be praised according to his insight, but one of perverse mind will be despised. You'd like to think so. It's it's upside down and backwards. Time magazine will put a pervert on the cover. Or Sports Illustrated will put a pervert on the cover. And instead of uh, despising a pervert, what do we got? Well, (laughs) one of perverse mind is supposed to be despised. It should be a man will be praised according to his insight. Yeah, that's under ideal circumstances in a covenant nation that appreciates the Word of God and lives the Word of God. In a pagan nation where Satan's wisdom uh, reigns supreme, then things do get flipped upside down, don't they? What are those who call good evil and evil good? And, uh, and there you have it. Even the idea of, of perversion is not allowed anymore. If you call somebody a pervert, you're a hater. Well, are they perverting Yes, then they are a pervert. <laughs> All right. Get more trouble. Chapter 13 and verse 13. The one who despises the word will be in debt to it, but the one who fears the commandment will be rewarded. There's a principle for you. What is your attitude towards the word of God? And sadly, uh, churches today are full of fun, funny games and entertainment and programs and whatever else. We can have 45 minutes of uh, all this extra stuff and 10 minutes of teaching. Shows you where the sense of scale is, doesn't it? Okay, I'd rather have 10 minutes of singing and an hour of teaching. That's, That's my priority. Do we despise it or do we fear it? Do we treasure it? All right, 1421. He who despises his neighbor's sins, but happy is he who is gracious to the poor. So now here's one that's very parallel to, to ours today. This one is uh, 1421 is right there with, with 11 and verse 12 because it's despising your neighbor. Despising your neighbor instead of loving your neighbor. And that's a sin. What are you doing despising your neighbor? On what standard? Do you, you think you're better than them? Happy is he who is gracious to the poor. Chapter 18 and verse 3. When a wicked man comes, contempt also comes, and with dishonor comes scorn. So you notice all of these are pretty similar. 23 verse 9. Do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the wisdom of your words. (laughs) Okay, And there's several that are similar to this. We have to have the discernment to know when to speak, when to be silent. Sometimes uh, you're commanded to uh, to speak, and uh, and then other times, no, you got to stay silent. And sometimes it's in uh, it's in back to back verses <laughs> that were that uh, we we rebuke them or we don't rebuke them. All right, so that's twenty three in verse nine, twenty three in verse twenty two. Listen to your father who begot you and do not despise your mother when she is old. (laughs) 
And finally, Proverbs 30 and verse 17. The eye that mocks a father and scorns a mother, the ravens of the valley will pick it out and the young eagles will eat it. That sounds pretty serious. (laughs) All right. Wow. Okay. And that's scripture. What's that about? That's, That's straight from the God of truth. So do I believe it? Is it true? Does it happen? What's the, uh, what's the language there? How is it designed to communicate? Or is it, just, is it just like my grandmother? Can I ignore it? Yeah, okay, grandma, whatever. My grandma used to say, if you stick your bottom lip out, right? Little kids pouting. You ever do that? Little pouting kid sticking that bottom lip out. Grandma used to say, if you that bottom lip, if you leave that bottom lip stuck out like that, chicken's going to come along and poop on it. Well, that sounds horrible. Yuck! <laughs> you know, chicken's going to do that. I hadn't seen a chicken in my neighborhood, and I don't know when, but okay. Um, but you know, all right. And and it worked because you know I don't want a chicken to poop on my. I'm going to I'm going to quit. I'm going to quit. Sticking my lip out like that. That's that's uh that sounds nasty. <laughs> All right, well, we're done. Um on that note, shall we pray? Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for um what we're looking at, Father, this this idea of contempt. And, and sometimes you pour contempt in response to the contempt you receive. Uh, But more often than not, the contempt comes from the unbelievers towards those that have a standard for your truth. And uh, it's never pleasant. uh, It is what it is. And Father, help us to stay faithful and help us to not become sources of this contempt. Who are we to despise our neighbor? Who do I think I am, Father, in any any neighbor? Believer, unbeliever, whatever the case, Father, I'm no better than... I should be in the lake of fire, and I know that. So, Father, uh, humble us to love our neighbors. Humble us to love our enemies. Humble us to, uh, to exhibit the wisdom of your word in all of our personal lives, our political lives, our voting, our economics, our uh, business dealings, our commerce. Everything that we do, Father, let it be humble. Let it be shaped by your truth. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.